the Dark Path podcast. Um, this is just a, a weekly update, as I like to call them, um, which has been a little bit more than a week since the last one, but um, I did get the interview out with John Foster on psychology, deep psychology, depth psychology, and uh, I think it was very worthwhile, very interesting conversation, and I hope everyone enjoyed it. Um, things are picking up again a little bit in in uh, my other side of my life, and um, being busy and, you know, this podcast is certainly not something that's making any money, so it's something I'm doing uh, with my spare time. I'm keeping the ball rolling, and I have a lot more stuff planned, <clears throat> but I'll definitely be um, continuing with the weekly updates at a bare minimum, uh, with much more on the way. So, today, um, being as though the last time I did one of these the world was quite a bit different than it is now. We've rapidly seen a shift in the overall situation. Um, I thought I would reflect back on that a lot because um, I think the last time I did a, 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 an update, the trucker protest in Ottawa was still raging and, um, and there was no particular focus on Ukraine and that situation. And since then, holy cow, <laughs> absolutely crazy. I do want to say that I watched the way things played out in, in Ottawa with dismay, deep dismay, and that is still being sorted out and it will take time to sort out, but must be sorted out properly. Today, um, Tamara, Tamara Lich, Lich the, uh, one of the organizers there, she finally was released on bail, so it's about downtime. But I think what really changed things was the Ukraine situation. And I think the reason that that did that was because it's, it's a real war. It's not a political fight. It's not, a, it's not a fight of words and rules and um, things that are kept within the context of what society sort of is supposed to be. And war is when the rules change and what matters is whether or not you survive, essentially. And so that, that throws a wrench into the gears of things, but in, in, in a way it does bring home reality a lot more. And you see this with people, um, I find this interesting and terrible, <laughs> is um, they, the recognition of the seriousness of what's happening in Ukraine um, overwhelms the focus on other things that are happening, say, domestically back here in Canada, let's say. So we still have in BC, particularly BC being an outlier, but um, some ridiculous restrictions and limitations based on COVID. Um, kids are still being masked up in school all freaking day. It's, it's ridiculous this is still happening. But I've heard this sentiment coming from people of, well, at least it's not as bad as in the Ukraine, because, you know, you can see in the Ukraine that, you know, things get a lot worse, and it's like, that's not a reasonable comparison. <laughs> I mean, on a number of levels, um, not the least of which being that, that the whole point of having any dialogue about the direction a society is taking is to avoid the pitfalls that ultimately do lead to either war, whether it's an external war or a civil war or whatnot, it's to avoid the outcome of violence. And I want to talk about that today is violence and how violence is at the heart of war and whatnot. And, and this is because as much as 
all of the things that are going on in the world are significant. I, we all know that war, which comes with this attachment of death and other things, other very nasty things, um, is is this kind of absolute that we don't want to hit. I think I, most people would agree with that. And so, in talking about that and thinking about that, I want to share uh, a book that I really feel like had changed my life, uh, affected me a lot. Um, it was published in, I think, 2006. Uh, it says in here, oh, 2004. Yeah, that makes more sense. So I picked it up pretty soon after it was published. And it was one of these things where I just happened to be in a bookstore um, and the title caught my eye. And the title caught my eye for a couple reasons. Um, one of them is that I definitely have always been interested in uh, trying to understand the human mind in the way that, whether it's psychology or, or other theories, um, trying to map out and understand what the anatomy of the mind is, why the functions work they do, with the way they do, what the relationships between different parts are. And of course, that was what we were talking largely uh, to John Foster with on the last podcast. So I have an interest in that anyways. And I had picked up, even by my early 20s, I had picked up on this idea that there's um, behavioral patterns that are likened to these things called archetypes, which is, which is um, you could think of a, per, a performer, a person that has an incredibly magnetic, charismatic personality and can just lead a crowd through all kinds of, you know, whether they're speaking or singing or whatever they're doing. Um, that person has a certain character to them. There's this performer, and it can be placed on, you know, a whole huge variety of people, but it's still the same intangible energy somehow. And and these and this would be considered an archetype. And then there's other archetypes, maybe the archetype of the farmer, the archetype of um, the king and the queen, of course, are big ones. But then um, the archetype of the warrior, of course, is another big one. That's kind of what we're touching, we're touching on today. So, anyways, that was already in my head. Um, but also, well, in, in conjunction with that, I had grown up with family and uh, close friends of the family that are involved in the military, um, some cases involved in World War II, the older generation when I was quite little, and other cases involved with more modern military affairs. But in any case, there was an exposure to military and the consequences of that were something I was aware of since a young age. And so I think for those those reasons, which are similar reasons in a way, um, the book caught my eye, and it's called A Terrible Love of War by an author named James Hillman. Um, he's more famous for a book called The Soul's Code, which is somewhere in the same sort of arena that maybe um, Eckhart Tolle could be sort of thrown into, I guess, but um, I'm not super familiar with uh, his other work. Uh, this one book, though, it just it brought home something to me that really has always helped me understand war and violence and chaos in the world. And um, not, it doesn't make it easier, it doesn't make it better, because it's still a horrific and terrible thing, but it just, it's, it's not as hard to fathom why it continues. Maybe that's a depressing thought. But anyways, I wanted to share the idea of the book, and I wanted to use the chapters of the book, there's only four of them, as jump-off points for some of uh, some ideas on 
conflict and battle of war and death and all of these things because they're ideas that I think are at the heart of any serious question about how society should function and go forward and how we can all improve the world and all of these fundamental questions um, have to be you have to take in this very seriously this this component of human behavior that at its worst is expressed as war but let's start with this aggression and this is the first chapter in the book is well let me let me get to that aggression is definitely a natural thing um, animals have lots of aggression in different ways and they're aggressive whether you can sort of categorize and say you know they're aggressive because of social dynamics and they're trying to hierarchy of their social social group or their uh, predator prey relationships and there's aggression there territorial disagreements there's definitely aggression and that aggression is in the animal kingdom you can't say it's a negative thing you can't say it's a bad thing it's just it's part of how survival works because ever since there was uh, enough life on the planet to compete for resources then the competition has always been life and death because those resources are life and so nature gave animals this push to really 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 go for it when it comes to surviving and of course we've had so many millions of species come and go and this has just been the way of it since the beginning so life is driven to to it forcefully survive. That's what it has to do, and in the most, for most animals, that is how it has to survive. You know, the, the entire class of animals that we call predators. What else are they going to do? They're not going to like gently take down their prey. They're going to have to take it down with some serious intention, intensity, and that intensity is violent, in a in a sense. Although we don't judge it morally, but that. Is sort of the basis for what the first chapter in the book um, wants to talk about, which is that um, war is, in the human experience, normal, in that there has been more war than there has been sustained peace. Most people don't understand how significant and unusual it has been for people in, say, you know, Canada here to have had a couple generations in a row without a significant war. That's not normal. <laughs> Uh, situation for humankind and uh, it becomes I, I think from the outside look, or sorry, from the inside looking out which is to be in this culture and have grown up that way I think it becomes very easy to forget how, what that means and you know we, we people observe a remembrance day although I thought last remembrance day was particularly strange because you know what does freedom mean exactly is a question that I think more people need to ask but but there was this idea that we do need to remember that, but why? <laughs> why does that keep happening? Sorry, why does violence pop up in the human experience historically again and again and again and again? Um, it might be that for the first time in history we get a chance to really reflect on this as a large group because we can communicate the way we are. Like right now, this, this podcast or, or with your friends, you can text about it. And therefore, we can have a better discussion of this. Because I don't think anybody, I mean, I, nobody I know specifically, and, and most people in general, I don't think would just say that, that they just want people to die. Nobody wants that. So how does that get resolved? Well, I think we can start with this idea that aggression is natural. And that because aggression is natural, we've never had a time without war. And so when we take on the task of trying to figure out how to go forward in the future without that, we have to 
to recognize the weight of the hubris of that situation because there's a lot there that needs to be you know accepted so if aggression is normal if aggression is a natural um, expression of life and that we are absolutely born out of that uh, or sure we're at least born with that potential and that potential can't be turned off then how does society sustain peace at all well it tends to create ceremonial ritualized behaviors that channel that aggression um, it creates sports where that aggression can be focused within the parameters of a set of rules that um, don't hurt you know at least don't kill people and, and even if they get a little bruised up in certain sports in, in that sense um, in social competition that still exists which I, you know it's always going to exist probably, as far as I can fathom it we're always going to be like competing with each other for status in some way and so that kind of aggression is is it can be integrated and and the distinction between the physical as violence can be established. And we think, I think in a lot of ways, we've done a pretty good job of this in Western culture for the last while, but we think we've forgotten the seriousness of why that difference matters. And so, again, from the first chapter of the book, as my reference point, um, while war has been normal throughout human history, I'm saying that for a large part of that reasoning is because Aggression is a natural part of the expressions of all life. And so it's on us to find a better way to focus that aggression. Now, the next chapter in the book um, is kind of the other side of the coin. So if the first chapter is to establish uh, as a principle uh, this idea that violence as it emerges out of the aggressive tendencies of life is not is normal it's part of it's just part of the way things have always worked so that we we can well part of it i think is we can become used to its occurrence in at least historically we don't have to be shocked by it we can just say start to look at it with a calmer or more even mind and that doesn't take away from the um the, the, the power of it in a negative sense. I mean, some of the atrocities that have been committed in, in human history are just atrocious, no doubt. But if we need to, we've got to dissect it without getting emotionally caught up in that dissection. That's important. Um, and this is a big part of what that dark path concept for me means, is to go into, say, um, a war crime that's committed. And it could be in a war crime on you know, either side of the teams, according to what you're supposed to like or not like, it's an investigation of how that human behavior manifests at all that becomes the focus to me. And there is something that's fairly universal about not just the ex extreme end of things where violence becomes un uncontained completely and is often what we call a war crime, but also within the rules of combat, as it were. Um, there's a, there's a thread there, and it's that when you're fighting the enemy, the enemy can't be a human being to you. They have to be just the enemy. Uh, psychologically, there's something profound about looking to another person in the eyes and still being willing to kill them. That is a very different thing than you know shooting a target on a computer screen. And um, that has been so 
denigrated in, in the last uh, hundred and some odd years as the industrialization of equipment and manufacturing has changed war so dramatically. But it matters because um, if we can't get a handle on our nature in this way, the danger of labeling a group as an outsider group and stripping them even in a small degree of their humanity becomes seriously possible and seriously dangerous. And so there's two things within that that are relevant here in today's world that I think I should point out is and, and again this is the, the basis of this is that in order to be able to kill a human being uh, for most people that aren't sociopathic that human being has to be stripped of their humanity and how do you really recognize the humanity of another person you look them in the eyes the eyes are the window to the soul as they say well it's more than just the eyes even though the eyes are in many ways a focal point it's the face it's the ability to look a person in the face and eyes and see the individual there see that they have an individual life that they have an individual family that they have passions and dreams and hopes and cares like anybody else like you do and once that's seen, it's hard to overcome the, that knowledge just prevents you from, I, you know, for most people, again, if you're not naturally sociopathic, it prevents you from acting negatively towards that person unnecessarily because you know that they're like you. And so we've seen, and this is just to connect this to our contemporary setting in Canada, is we've seen... Um, a tool, this thing called a mask, being used to take away two-thirds of the face on everybody for a couple of years. And nobody's thought about the ramifications of that. And yet, we never, you know, divisiveness is certainly going on everywhere you look, so you know, there might be a connection. And the other part of that that connects, and as much is like to me is like the big concern, even though the masking is a concern, is oh, we we were we were we were just trying the media and the government just trying to give us a group to blame for the problems that are occurring because of the lack of maturity and uh, proper taking of responsibility in our government. Um, and that group was inherently already stripped of most of their humanity for not being willing to, to participate in an experimental medical procedure. Like that, that's, that's, that's part of this danger is that it isn't that war suddenly pops on your doorstep tomorrow and all these things happen. It's that the mind gets funneled into a place where there's the appropriate elements are in place. So there's a group you can blame and then they're not human. You're allowed to then, you know, there's implicit or sometimes explicit permission given to just, you know, torture and killing these people at some point. So, so this is why though, I think there's such a strong response to actual violence when it occurs, even if it's misguided. Um, uh, people's response to killing, unnecessary killing, is always quite visceral, and it should be, because it it takes away hum human side of things, and that that's our way forward in a good way. If we want to go forward in a good way, we can recognize that our history is absolutely full of war and death. 
But as we go forward, we can focus on the humanity of each other and the individual recognition of each other. In martial arts, um, there's a lot of bowing in traditional martial arts, but and that's what that's there to reinforce, is that you're dealing with another real person, another actual person, even if they're in a different rank and you're, you know, there's a relationship of, of hierarchy there, there's still a person. Um, yoga, of course, has the namaste concept, which is essentially the same thing. And this is how we go forward without the worst end of violence manifesting. So I find it interesting to watch on the news right now, or little news feeds that I see that the civilians, the people in Ukraine, the people in Russia and stuff, there is a lot of backlash against this. And it's a unique kind of backlash to me where the recognition is, they, is, is, is that there's these world powers that are just disconnected from their lives and they're doing something that they don't want them to do and they just want them to stop. They just stop doing that. Most people can accept that they're going to have leaders in their countries and their um, and all this, but they stop being so easily drawn into this. Not that anything about the Ukrainian situation is easily years in the making, um, but I, I don't know a whole lot more about that one, so I don't want to get too much into it. Now, jump ahead to the to the heart of the matter in many ways. So we have this situation where, for all of human history, there has been violence. And that violence is largely born out of a natural impulse to be, to establish oneself in the environment, in the, in the social hierarchy, in, in, the, in, in life. And that all things have this drive, and that drive could be called aggression. But that we also have become self-conscious enough to know that if we can't look at another person and see another human being, then the door is open to absolute savagery. But if we do look at another person and see them as such human, another person, then that door closes and, and, and the likelihood of brutal behavior gets shut down quite a bit more because it's in the recognition of the humanness of each other, the humaneness of each other that, that we can steer away from the worst end of that the aggressive tendencies we have, but we can't get rid of them. And that means that, I think, anyways, that means that things like UFC fighting or hockey or um, race car driving, um, which or, or you could go into, you know, the little circles of people that are pursuing making the most money they can in, in the stock market. Um, these are all aggressive-driven things. They want to get out on top and win and everything, but they're, they're contained within at least ideally, they're contained within a framework that is both legal and doesn't directly kill anyone anyways. And society sort of accepts, and, and that is, that's fine, that's good. Especially with sports, I really like sports for that because it's a way to really physicalize that expression. And I think that's important too. But there's another thing about war and death that I think brings it all home, sort of connects all of this stuff, especially the question of why does this keep happening? And it's right at the heart of so many human problems. And so the third chapter in the book speaks directly to this, I think, which is to say war. And I would really say that here, what they're talking about is death. Death is sublime. Now, again, 
being that I named the, the podcast the Dark Path Podcast, I have a focus towards the dark side of life in the sense that that's what needs to be brought to light for, 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 again, for the movement forward to be, uh, be done by. And so there's nothing darker than death. Whatever death is, whatever happens after that, there's no way of confirming it or no, it's a, it's the ultimate unknown. And so it's the darkest unknown in many ways. But it also, we know that what it, what it is amongst other things is that it's the end of the experience here. Whatever this is and whatever life is, that does come to some kind of definitive end for the individual. And that then represents a boundary between this world and whatever else might be out there. And of course, you know, you don't have to believe anything else is out there, but it certainly represents something happening that ends one thing and if it doesn't begin another thing that end is still a potent energetic dynamic and so if you've ever been in presence of someone who dies or even in the presence of animals uh, you know maybe you disagree with me but I have both uh, well definitely with animals um, there's something to it. There's something there. It's, it's not a huge... You have to be paying attention. You have to be kind of calm. You have to be able to be honest with yourself and everything, but it's there. And so when, when it's more intense, though, it's understood that it gets much more dynamic. I don't think dynamic might... Dynamic might not be the right word, but whatever it is that animates the experience of witnessing um, being near death... Um, when that death is violent, dramatic, it's even more intense. And a, a large component of that really confuses and um, PTSD issues is that there is something sublime about the experience. Because like the mind, uh, some of you may have had a, a really bad car accident, for example. You, and if you, you haven't, and, and I hope you haven't, <laughs> You can imagine somebody who has telling you a story where they said that the, the, the experience of time during the accident, both in some ways seemed really fast, like it'll happen at once, but also really slow, where they can see, like maybe if the car's rolling, they can actually see the car rolling as if it's in slow motion. And what that is, is because the, the, the mind does shift out of normal day-to-day consciousness in those moments. It's, they're considered, I, I was considered a kind of a flashpoint thing, right? You're, you're so overstimulated with some kind of experience that your mind goes out of normal day-to-day consciousness into something else, and it's a little bit uncontrollable in these cases. But those those shifts in consciousness, which, um, as I'm saying, can, can happen during traumatic experiences, there's something very similar to those and things that are ascertained through great deals of uh, sort of meditative effort in, in spiritualities or, or potentially even with um, 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 the use of certain kinds of drugs because, well... I mean, fundamentally, most people only think of their day-to-day consciousness as what consciousness is, but there's certainly more to it than that. Um, And when you shift out of that consciousness, that experience is usually called sublime, and it could be for good or bad, of course. So, so let's let's take the example. I love uh, heavy metal, and I mean, I like absolute death metal, like progressive black death metal. Um, I don't want to listen to 
dying fetus every day all day long, but I certainly like listening to them. Um, and, and that's an interesting thing. So what do I like about it? Well, when I hear those types of songs, it, the, the sound waves are just overwhelming. There's just so much going on. It's so intense and so fast and so powerful. But I enjoy it. And so what do I enjoy it? Because it stimulates a state of consciousness that's somewhat hyper alert maybe and very stimulated to act, very empowered, very pushed forward. And this is something that most people enjoy feeling. I mean, people that like stimulants too much, it's essentially what they're chasing. And in many ways, the, uh, the intense music is kind of a stimulant. And there's a good and bad in that, of course, but, but that is touching on something that's more than just enjoyable. There's something sublime about it because it's shifting you out of that day-to-day -day consciousness. And so when we think about traumatic experiences and death and war, there is more to it than just horror in that sense. There's, there, there's an ambivalent nature to, to a lot of it. Like So for instance, imagine uh, tribal warfare, so like early primitive uh, human warfare. Um, often you would have a personal knowledge of the people that you're, or the person that say you're going after, and if you did defeat them, um, there would be incredible elation in that sense. You, you, it, 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 it's tied into these natural sociological behaviors. Um, and, but then there's the aspect of it where it goes beyond even that, where I, 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 I was down in Mexico and I, was, I saw the, 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 the Pyramid of the Sun and uh, saw where the, the human sacrifices, some of them anyways, were done. And I really thought about like what that would look like to an observer of that. And, you know, we, we think of the horror of it, but there's something about those experiences um, that it is transcendent in some way, in some horrible way, the killing of another creature, especially a human being in such a, in such a manner, it's going to cause an effect. Your mind's going to shift. Um, both uh, Dan Carlin has a really an amazing podcast about painful tainment, I think he calls it, where he talks about this evolution, how it occurred in European history. Um, and then also um, Gerald Cooper in the Modern Made podcast did one that I really liked when he was talking about the history of cannibalism and how it's sort of the root of a lot of these sacrificial behaviors, which later on become completely symbol symbolically played out, but are kept there because they, they connect a, per a person to something that's greater than just the day-to-day -day. and nothing grabs the mind as I said more powerfully as the unknown that death represents so in many ways I don't think that the sublime and even the sacred could exist without death and that's because if death didn't exist the severity of the consequences of choice wouldn't matter as much I, you know, this has been played out in some TV shows, I'm sure, but like, you know, if you can't be killed, then like, who cares what you do? It doesn't matter. But because death exists and it's absolute, well, it definitely matters what you choose to do. And so, so much of this, and this goes back to that idea of the first chapter, the idea that war is normal, is just intrinsically part of life. But what we value and what we want to use to move forward our humanity um, 
is is it's not that it's antithetical to war as much as that it's well it kind of is I guess but it's it's a it's a different direction than the indulgence of that behavior that behavior has to be kind of like like the way that a little kid might have aggressive tendencies and they need to be taught you can't behave that way you have to change that you you fill in the raw aggression with symbolic gesture or verbal dialogue or something like this and that begins with and that centers around with the recognition of each other as human beings as, as equal human beings to each other and then in order to hold and sustain a society some methods for connecting with the sublime or the sacred aspects of life have to be in place and available and that ties into these the desire for you know extremes that people have and so there's something sublime about uh, you know an athlete just just pushing the human potential to the absolute limit of, of what's possible and, and witnessing that you get filled with something about it because it really it really brushes up on the border on what of possibility and, and this is wonderful and that athlete you know you can say is 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 aggressively taking themselves to that highly potent state of mind and focus and power and pushing their you know they're not like you know having like long form conversations with the other players on the other team about being nice, they're absolutely trying to win at the highest focus, but that's how you get there, is that is that um is that kind of shift. So this then represents to me what, what the balance that can be aimed at that, that works is, is that we can get rid of the we shouldn't want to get rid of the drive to push, to be intense, to to outcompete. Um, we should just find ways of funneling that energy that are productive, and the way that keep we keep society from disintegrating or denigrating into into a really dangerous any dangerous places. And there's a number of ways we can do this: is never allowing any group of people to be identified with something that isn't equally valid as it, as you are. So that's holding on to our mutual humanity with each other. And then driving those intense, aggressive tendencies into appropriate venues. Um, I have been used about the idea that we could we could have it set up that like you could sign up for like a, a, a personal grudge match boxing thing where you get like a an actual referee and then a medical person would be there and then you could put on the gloves and you go into a ring and and you just people go at it and just sort of like you know take out their their anger at each other in, in that way i mean and it's not like that's the most safe thing in the world but it's certainly a lot safer than letting people fight in the dark alleys with knives and and, and, and maybe that's not a great idea but it's just the idea then of consciously focusing where that energy goes within society and allowing that to be natural and and then providing a way for people to connect with the, the sacred. And this is definitely not the government's responsibility at all, but as a community, as an individual, finding ways to, to make the sacred a, a realistic possibility within the choices that a person has in their life and, and stay in touch with that. Um, and then that represents connection with, 
well, ultimately death. Because that's what all stories are teaching us, is cycles. And the cycle at the end has to be accepted. And that brings me to the final chapter in the book. As Again, these are just starting points. This is not what's in the book specifically. I, I highly recommend reading it, of course, but that's a whole different thing. I'm just using these as jumping points because they really represent again to me like this idea of how to sort of make sense of this, even if it's not, even if it's not like, you know, overly optimistic, it helps make sense of it. And so the final chapter is, is called um, Religion is War. Now, whenever I bring that one up, I always like to point out that I don't, I know that Hillman did not mean to infer that war is in a neg- as a negative, like religion is, is 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 the cause of war or anything like that? Um, it's the nature of the idea of the struggle um, towards whatever you want to frame the good as, whether that's God or whatever else. Um, it's it's not easy, you know. Um, Taking an example of like a person born into the lap of luxury, they're like a you know a trust fund kid and. Uh, everything is always paid for for them and everything like that but they, but they have inherited a huge fortune and most people think about that oh that person's you know how could they ever complain about anything but if they're actually a moral person and they really care about the world then that huge amount of money they inherited is actually a giant responsibility and they have very serious worries and concerns and if they care about how they utilize that money towards any greater good for the world and so there's a struggle there and there's no way that you can have any situation in which you're aiming at bettering the, the world in yourself in which there isn't going to be uh, a pushback because the world is just not set to be easy. It's just how it is. And so religion in that sense is always saying, whether whatever religion it is, that this is a guideway through this process of life. And that means that religion is almost arming you for that battle, for that conflict. And and I think a lot of religious people would agree with that. I think that that could be uh, fairly universally accepted. But there's another deeper part of that too, which connects to the sublime element and the idea that violence and death bring out an aspect of the self that is often very deeply hidden. And that is what happens when a person, especially a person whose natural tendency is to be really aggressive, um, is given sort of a space to do that in a totally unhinged way? Uh, like, like the Vikings had these guys called berserkers that apparently um, would even take magic mushrooms, go into battle naked, and just were just like, you know just out of their heads. And what does that? What is that? What is, where, what's coming out there? And and it's you know it's fiery and intense. And I think that that is something religion is trying to house and contain and it helps quite a bit to do that actually. That idea of something that is deep inside the human soul that emerges in certain circumstances that can be catastrophic. Um, I think about that quote that, well, I think of, I learned about it like most, most of us do is a quote that was quoted by uh, uh, Oppenheimer at the, at the detonation of the first nuclear blast, and he was quoting the Bhagavad Gita, of course, and he was saying, you know, I have become death to destroy our worlds. That feeling 
is inherently inside and it can get drawn out and that religion gives it this frame that is trying to contain it and so you know Christianity would be the devil and um, the temptations of Christ and all this but there's there's a million different versions of that story in many different ways um, so religion is, is tied to it. spirituality is tied to this they're all tied to this battle between good and evil ultimately and of course what's evil in the sense well it's, it's that which undoes life that which is antithetical to existence and, and, and ultimately to thriving um, and it's here too that if we if we're careful about this I think I think that the power and the transcendent nature of what this all means to the mind which is based on that recognition of the severity of death the absolute nature of death can become can be as it was in other cultures um, sort of the binding force that holds so much of holds our stability together because we're all limited by that reality. We're all limited by the resources, food. We're, like our lives are finite, and that connects all of us. And that, and then not only that, we're really fragile creatures as human beings. So we, you know, we need a lot of infrastructure around us at all times to survive. These these things matter. And so, if we can embrace that understanding and 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 frame our lives and society in such a way that the beneficial aspects of the intense energy that we can call aggression if, or we can sort of call it just willpower or whatever it is can be utilized in a positive way and we can stay in touch with the sacred and not lose our humanity amongst each other and therefore balance out the difference between wanting to win and, and push and you know hold your space and knowing that war is not going literal war is not actually on the table could be a good option and let me finish this con part of the conversation with this why does it matter why does it matter so much that actual war is not on the table and the reason is because death the power of death is is absolute so if you think about Two people have a conflict, um, and maybe they go to a and they go to a judge, right? Um, some small claims court judge or something in that sense. Once the judgment's made, then it's made, and then the two people go off into their lives and live with the consequences. But if that, if if they were in a society where um, blood feuds were still expressed and the, the decision and it was like acceptable that one, the, you know, the the, the complainant the uh, the person who's, who's got the complaint against the other person just attacks and kills the other person and then you know their family would come back and hey, you've got this whole life or I thing and it, it doesn't go away so we need this intermar inter we need this this stand-in that society creates that's fair and disconnected from the individual drive that leads people to want to hurt each to you know to, to settle squares in that way to settle their anger in that way but that has to be within a society that's framework is based on actual recognition of every individual's 
right to go uh, go through life un, unharassed. And then that is the balance of that is the balance of 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 what a good society does. Now, I don't know if that really was a great uh, uh, insight into anything necessarily. But those are some of the thoughts that are at the heart of so much of what matters to me in terms of all that's going on in the world. And I don't um, mean to say that I have any sort of authoritative, definite, you know, claim to fame here in any way. I'm just, these are just sort of ongoing discussions. And part of what I want to do with future guests coming up would be to talk about some of this stuff um, in a much, in, and learn and hopefully, you know, evolve the idea. Um, well, hope, but what I was trying to get at today then, with this conversation is a few of the things that I think are just important if you want to try to make sense of violence in anywhere in the world is it's, it's, it's just part of how it's always been and it comes out of natural tendencies that all living creatures have and that well, well the inhuman part the part it has sort of two sides where like to go towards the better a better future it's by recognition of our fellow of our own humanity and our humanity of others, but once that is discarded, and then uh, then atrocities are easily committed because there's no hum- humanness there. It's just it's it's all become abstract separation. And so, um, and then finally, that the sacred and sublime and religion and spirituality um, are deeply threaded into these issues, and there's almost sort of no way of disconnecting them essentially. Um, and this is all actually very empowering, even if it's not necessarily something you know a person is, is normally sort of con- considered to be the, the way of it. But if life was, if you were om, om, omnip, omnipotent and omnipresent, then there would be no surprises, there would be no struggle, there would be no issues, there would be no worry, there would be no concern. All of these things are born out of the fact that whatever this experience of life is, there's a lot of questions that we can't answer at any given time, so we have to just take things as they come. And that's okay. It's actually kind of fun. Um, but let's not go down any roads that lead to absolute true violence. I think we've done that enough in history. I think we've hurt each other enough in history. And I mean that, we hurt each other. We're all part of a human family. Whenever one person is killed, another it, it, on these scales, it, 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 it comes back to bite us all in the ass ultimately because no, you know, because well, that's the nature of those kinds of behaviors. And it's also the reason why it matters so much if we live in a truly free country or not, and whether or not uh, free will and free expression and free speech are or are, are acknowledged is because those are one of the only things that actually keep us from falling into a world where some amount of death and chaos are inevitable. And also that we have desires and proclivities, and, and this is everybody, that most people, you know, maybe haven't thought about, maybe haven't thought about your attraction to violent, movie, violent scenes and violent movies, you know, like, you know, thought about it as something that you, like, you're attracted to, but it's okay to think about it that way, because it gives you a more honest view of what's going on. Why does your adrenaline spike up when you watch a horror movie? Well, because it's in stimulating fright, but it's doing it kind of a safe way, and that's kind of fun. It's like a roller coaster, and and being honest about it means though that you can sort of you can you can 
you can do a lot better job of keeping those impulses in check because you're not trying to hide from yourself what they're about. Um, yeah, so like I said, that I think that'll do for today. Um, it's been a crazy week and a half. It'll probably be another crazy week ahead, but I'll put out another one in another week. And um, hopefully we'll get some more guests up here pretty quick, uh, um, which we definitely will, but I mean, time-wise, I'll find time to edit it all up. And um, I'm thinking about putting up a website pretty soon now, too. And uh, lots more other stuff. So thank you so much for your time. Have a great day, morning, afternoon, whatever it might be. And we'll see you again soon.